All right, good morning, everybody. Well, uh, this is uh, the final message in our series that we do every November on uh, Family Focus Month. And if you've been with us uh, this entire time, as you know, uh, Nam started off uh, the series uh, with the message on adoption. And uh, that was followed up by uh, Pastor Dave, who gave a message on marriage. And last week, if you recall, uh, Elder George did a message on uh, singleness. And uh, that brings us to our, our final uh, topic here. And uh, it's really um, a sensitive topic uh, this morning. And, uh, but it, it, it's, as you can see in the, on the title there, it's Trusting God uh, Through Infertility. You know, we, we address uh, this issue for the first time uh, during our Family Focus Month because uh, it is devastating for those who are experiencing it. And uh, for those of you who are, we just want you to know uh, that we, as your church family, are there for you, that you are part of our family. And for those who are experiencing uh, infertility, we just want to recognize that it's difficult to say the least. There, there is a natural God-given desire for most couples to have children. I mean, maybe you've wanted children since you yourself was a child and you dreamed about the day where you would get married and have kids uh, of your own. And maybe you pictured in your mind's eye what your ideal family would look like. You know, maybe a boy, a girl, a dog, and a house that you would all live together in and play in and grow, you know, grow um, as a family together. And, you know, infertility comes along and thwarts these plans and can really throw us into a lot of doubt and confusion. And so for you, we want, you know, really to recognize your suffering and your pain and let you know that we love you and we support you as our family member. You know, you might be surprised to find out that the Bible actually has a lot to say about infertility, and we'll do our best to work through some of the passages uh, to see how we can benefit should we go through it ourselves or uh, to help minister to those who do. In this message, I'm not going to address uh, the validity or invalidity of fertility treatments and the various options that are available today. That will have to be the subject for another day. That, that's a, a whole long discussion all by itself. But instead, I just want to focus on the proper heart aspect of the believer who is going through a difficult time and how to trust God through it all. Before we go any further, uh, let me just take a moment to provide a definition of infertility that will inform our discussion going forward. Christian ethicist uh, Dr. Ken Magnuson uh, provides this uh, very short, helpful definition. Infertility is understood as the inability to become pregnant after one year of trying. That is, regular intercourse without the use of contraception or the inability to carry a pregnancy to live birth affecting 10 to 15% of couples. And so this will be the definition that uh, we'll be working from as we discuss infertility. But before we discuss, uh, begin to discuss this, let me just take a moment as we open in prayer 
and commit our time to you, to the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, as we discuss this issue, we pray that you would uh, guide our discussion along and help us to understand the word, help us to understand uh, uh, your, your mind on this and how we ought to um, how we ought to think about this, how we ought to address it, how we ought to experience it by trusting uh, in you through it all. So we commit our time to you here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we discuss um, infertility, I guess I need to turn this on, would be helpful. Uh, we want to discuss uh, a few matters first. One is the, well, let me just show you the outline, I guess, first, as you can look up there. Number one is the procreation mandate. Two, covenant blessing. Three, uh, we'll look at select examples of infertility in scripture. And then uh, fourth, we'll look at a response. But where it's good to start is always at the beginning. And so before we begin to discuss infertility, let's first discuss God's intention for fertility. So turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. We'll go right there at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. There we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, uh, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I want to draw your attention to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, although strictly speaking, these are imperatives, I don't want you to think of it in just mere you know, commands, because they're not so much commands as they are blessings. Now, don't get me wrong. Certainly, it was a command to Adam and Eve, or else, think about it, failure to comply would have meant extinction of the human race. We couldn't even have gotten out of the starting gate, right? But notice, the verse is introduced by the statement, and God blessed them, demonstrating that God's blessing is the context for the command. So we shouldn't think of it so much as a duty to be performed or that you're guilty of sin, but that reproduction is a blessing. It's a gift from God that will ultimately fulfill God's purpose of filling the earth. We see the same phenomena, by the way, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. You remember just after Noah and his family leave the ark, you have almost the same thing. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So in the pursuit of children then, we just want to establish this right from the start, is a good desire and it springs from God's purposes in creation to both bless and to subsequently fill the earth. Okay. Turn in your Bibles next uh, to, I just want to establish that. Now we'll go to uh, number two, covenant blessings. You know, you might be surprised to find out that, you know, under the old covenant, there were blessings that were associated with obedience, with the nation's obedience. And the, there were uh, curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience. 
And we find some of these blessings in the next couple of passages we look at. Let's take a look here at Psalm 127, verses 1 to 5. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The psalm uh, breaks down into two parts. The first, verses 1 and 2, emphasizes the futility of living independently of the Lord and laboring under their own strength, trying to really make it on their own, uh, so to speak. And the outcome is frustration, anxiety, and painful toil. So Solomon, much like he did in Ecclesiastes, describes those whose life is empty and futile because they are not trusting in the Lord. On the other hand, notice the description of the beloved. Those who are in covenant relationship with the Lord, who live by faith in him and are consequently blessed by him. So rather than live in soul dependence upon themselves and their own agonizing labor and effort to provide for themselves, God's people rely upon the Lord, trusting that he will provide what they need, which includes, in this context, the blessing of children. Notice he describes them as a heritage and a reward. This is synonymous parallelism, so we're talking about the same thing. Meaning that the Lord provides for you what you can never provide for yourself just by your own effort. So, you know, not so different than today, the ancients viewed children as the greatest blessing. Maybe you don't feel that way sometimes, parents, but that's, you know, kind of the perspective here, as the greatest blessing that God could reward them with in their marriage. And considering how high the mortality rate was in those days, um, should a child survive, it would be sufficient cause to praise God and to give him thanks. Children are interestingly here compared to arrows in the hand of a warrior. Um, that's, parents, that's probably not how you've described your, parent, uh, your children to your friends, you know, unless you're, you know, they were arrow in your heart and said, oh, caused me so much pain this week or, or, or something like that. But arrows in the hand of a warrior is probably not how we would describe our children today. But the idea seems to be that just as a warrior would feel safe with his weapons in his hands uh, and ready to use, in the same way, parents would feel safe when their children are able to defend their family honor when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, think about those days, what that would have meant. The gate was the place where legal, commercial, and business transactions and disputes took place 
Arbitration often took place there. So the idea is that they would make their parents proud because they will not lose their dispute to their enemies, meaning when those who oppose the values of their father would bring a dispute against them. And presumably this is like in your older age, you know, when you're less capable of defending yourself, your children are there to protect you and to help you and to fight your case for you. And many of you who've had elderly parents know what that's like to advocate for them, whether it's in the hospitals or people trying to rip them off um, or whatever. This is kind of the idea here. So blessing is then associated with many children uh, and described as the one who has a full quiver of them. So all this to say that scripture views children uh, as a blessing from God and as an act of his favor. Look at one other passage, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 9, which says this, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. This uh, section in Leviticus details the covenant blessings that Israel as a nation will experience uh, should they remain faithful to the covenant commands that God had given to them. And notice, one of those blessings highlighted here in the law is fertility. This echoes God's original command to Adam and Eve. And essentially, he says here that he will be faithful to bring it about should Israel be faithful to keep their part of the covenant. In fact, the same promise of fertility is reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13, which says this. It says, he will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give to you. So again, if we were living under the old covenant, we see these kinds of promises that were given to the Israelites about the blessings uh, that God would give of fertility. Uh, oh, hey, there's that verse, I guess. I, I kind of missed that there. Sorry about that. Uh, could have saw that in real time, but uh, you know, for those of you who are speed readers, there, there it is. So. All right. Now, let me, I'm going to, what I want to do next is I just want to hopscotch around the Old Testament and give you some select examples of infertility in Scripture. And again, this is not everything, but some selected passages. See what we could glean from them uh, in terms of um, how we can respond. Let's take a look at the first example there in Abraham and Sarah. This story is found in Genesis chapter, uh, chapters 12 to 21. And uh, there, if you recall, again, I'm going to have to summarize a lot. We'll be reading some too. But God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 12 to 3, known as the Abrahamic covenant. He said there, uh, God said there, and I will make of you to Abraham a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families 
of the earth shall be blessed. That was really one of the big emphasis in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And, you know, although so much more can be said, for our purposes, we want to point out God's promise that from Abram, he was going to make a great nation, a huge clan of people in verse 2. The use of that word nation is significant because it's a word that's been used several times up to this point in Genesis concerning the other Gentile nations of the world, starting there in chapter 10. And so God promised to Abram that his descendants will grow into a great nation amongst the other Gentile nations of the world. So in order for God to keep this promise, he must provide, what? Children to Abraham, to Abraham and Sarah. So what's the problem? Well, the problem, so far as Abraham was concerned, was that God had not kept his promise to him. So Abraham, Abraham complains in Genesis 15, 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In, a, in other words, Abraham is questioning God's promise out loud, wondering if his servant Eliezer is going to be his adopted heir, but not someone from his own loins. Well, God deny, denies that this will be the case and takes Abraham outside and tells him to look up into the sky. You remember this? And promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And if you recall, Abraham, at that point, it was a turning point in Abraham's life. He believed everything that the Lord had told him. And it's at this point in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham is justified. He's declared righteous before the Lord. His sins are forgiven. And he is a believer. And it's immediately after this that the Lord formally institutes the Abrahamic covenant in verses 7 to 11. So what's the problem? Well, as we'll see, so far as Sarah was concerned, God had been too slow in keeping his promise to them. And so let's see what, what happens next. In Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, it says this, Now Sarah... Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. You know, because God hasn't answered as quickly as they would have liked, Sarah devises an alternate plan 
of surrogacy slash concubinage, right? Uh, but this was an unfaithful circumvention. And so as a result of not trusting in God's promise and trying to take God's will into their own hands, they suffer the consequences of their disobedience with a domestic nightmare of their own making, right? Abraham now has two wives. He has a child with the concubine wife, Hagar, and now he has a conflict on his hands between the two wives and bitterness from the first wife, Sarah, who really blames him for the whole thing, even though it was her idea, you know, in, in the first place. And um, by the way, people often ask the question, you know, how come we don't see condemnations of polygamy when so many, you know, godly people in the, in the Old Testament are guilty of the sin? Uh, the simple answer to it is this is the condemnation of it by showing it. The implicitly within all of these narratives that we will look at, you're supposed to see the folly of it by when you, you know, go away from God's original plan that's found in the garden when marriage is instituted. Anyways, this is what's going on. Both Abraham and Sarah are guilty of impatience and mistakenly thinking that if God doesn't keep his promises right away, then we should no longer trust in them and we need to devise our own plan to get what we want. Well, we kind of all know how the story goes. God eventually does make good on his promise when Abraham was a hundred years old and Sarah is a young chick of 90, right? And uh, this means that, think about it, 25 years had passed from the time that God first gave the promise in Genesis 12 to the time that their son Isaac was actually born. Well, what are some of the principles, as we take a stop for a pause here for a second, what are some of the principles that we can glean from this narrative? First of all, let me give a negative. It is not just trust the Lord and he'll eventually give you a baby. You know, God never made that promise to any of us as he did to Abraham. And so that's not anything that we can hold God to as if he's made that promise to us. Also, church, it's at this point that I want to make, um, I, I want to make this comment. It's not helpful to make these kinds of promises on, on behalf of God either to others that are going through the, the problems of infertility. You know, just trust and pray and eventually God will give you your heart's desire. A variation on this is to single people, right? God has someone special for you and he's going to give you that person as if God had made this promise. I think George alluded to that last week. Uh, or here's another favorite one. Everyone I know who adopts eventually conceives. So just adopt a child and then you'll get a child of your own. As if God has made that promise as, as well. Um, let's be there to provide counsel for people in our church, but not bad counsel, okay? And we shouldn't make promises uh, on God's behalf that he has never himself made. Secondly, trusting God, okay, is not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. 
You know, think of how much trouble Abraham and Sarah could have saved themselves if they had just trusted in the Lord uh, instead of trying to take God's will into their own hands. You know, for those of you who are struggling with infertility, uh, my counsel isn't to give you some kind of formula uh, to trust God, which will result in getting what you want. That's the prosperity gospel, right? No, my goal is to help you to see that God himself is trustworthy and you should trust in him to do what's best for your life. Maybe that'll mean for you to have uh, to have a baby. Maybe it will, but maybe you might have to wait. Maybe the timing isn't what you want, but neither was it for Abraham and Sarah either. I'm sure it wasn't their goal to have a baby at 190 years old. But it could also mean and this is the hard part, right? That it isn't God's will for you to have a baby. And you need to be able to trust him for that decision as well. It's a hard thing to come to grips with, right? When God is in control of all things. Maybe he's leading you to adopt. Maybe he's not. But in either case, the Lord has reasons for your infertility. And the tough part is not knowing why, right? And, and maybe you might never know why, uh, but knowing why is never a prerequisite for trusting God with your life. And that's true of this. It's true of anything in your life. Third, you know, don't take God's will into your own hands. You know, in this context, I mean, don't try to have a baby at all costs, regardless of what's involved. You know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have time in this message to talk about all the various fertility treatments that are available today, right, ARTs. But I can say this much. As Christians, we have to use discernment as to what fertility treatments are acceptable or a violation of the biblical principle of the sanctity of human life. Listen, it is immature for a believer to think that just because something is legal or tech technologically available, then it's automatically okay for me to participate in. You know, as believers, we have to understand that there are some technologies that will be available to us, and yet we will have to reject them because of the moral implications that we believe are incompatible with the sanctity of human life principle. Otherwise, if we ignore that, we can get ourselves into a similar mess that Abraham and Sarah did trying to have a baby at all costs. Look, it's really confusing, and I understand that when you are faced with all the options. And so if you aren't sure what is or isn't acceptable, ask one of the elders to give you some help to navigate through all the options so that you can make an informed choice and not violate either biblical principles or your conscience when it comes to this subject matter. Let's go to uh, capital letter B here, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Who can forget the tumultuous story of Jacob and the drama that played out between his father-in-law, Laban, and his two daughters, right? Um, the story begins like this in Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 to 5. 
Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So if you remember the story, Isaac sends out his son, Jacob, to Padan Aram so that he could find a wife from his mother's family. And it's there that he finds his uncle Laban, who was his mother's brother. But it isn't long, however, that Jacob discovers that Uncle Laban has a daughter, cousin Rachel. And we find that in verses 9 to 12. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. You ever heard the expression, kiss the girls and make them cry? You ever heard that? I've heard that. And for the life of me, I still don't know what the heck that means, right? But in this case... Jacob kissed Rachel, and he himself cried aloud, probably because he was so overcome with emotion that he was at the right place with the right person. Jacob's uh, uncle Laban invited him to stay with him, and after a month, he asked them what he would propose uh, would be his wages uh, to work for him as an employee. Well, Jacob asked for Rachel, his daughter, as his wife, to which Laban agrees, but you're going to have to work seven years to get her. Well, he does that. He agrees to the terms, and after the seven years were completed, uh, Jacob was ready to receive his bride. But you all remember what happened here in the story? To Jacob's shock, when he woke up in the morning in the conjugal tent, the scripture just says, Behold, it was Leah. That's how it, that's how it describes it. And Jacob had been double-crossed by his uncle to marry the less desirable daughter. You remember how scripture describes Leah? It says, Leah's eyes were weak. You remember that? That's another way of saying she wasn't that good to look at, right? But Rachel, Rachel, the scripture says something very different. It says, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, meaning she was the knockout. So it's a tale of two sisters here, right? And so Laban then proposed another deal wherein Jacob would serve him for another seven years, and then he would receive the daughter that he originally intended to marry, which was Rachel. Well, once again, we're left with a very messy domestic situation 
that is summarized in this one verse. Look at what it says here in 29 verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now think about life from Leah's perspective. Her situation is very sad. She knows that her marriage is the product of deceit and that Jacob is really in love with her sister, Rachel. So Leah will be married to him for seven years, but with the understanding that he's always looking ahead to the day he can be with her sister. Now, ladies, those of you who have sisters, uh, which of you would like to be in Leah's shoes in a situation domestically like this? Now, I want to draw your attention to a very important verse, the very next verse. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. You know, God had pity on Leah, seeing that she was unloved, and did for her what he chose not to do for Rachel, and that is, he opened her womb. This is a, a clear reminder to the reader that God is the giver of life and that it's ultimately up to him as to whether you will be blessed with children or not. No amount of human ingenuity can override the sovereign will of God. Yet this unhealthy situation brought out the worst in both women and a sibling rivalry over the same husband is now going to extend to childbearing. And so look what we see next uh, going on here. When, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Rachel's uh, infertility combined with Leah's fertility provoked envy within Rachel and blame towards her husband, Jacob. Again, the narrative is already a condemnation of, of this kind of a setup. But um, this is what it is. And we all know that when we become emotional, envious, and idolatrous, we often become irrational, very irrational, such as in this case. And so Rachel demands children of Jacob or she's going to die. This is about as rational as a husband blaming his wife for not giving birth to the preferred gender that he want, you know, wanted in the delivery room, as if she could control such a thing, right? But now, although Jacob isn't going to win the Sympathetic Husband of the Year Award, he does in his frustration make an important theological declaration. And that is, only God can give the blessing of life, and it is also God who withholds it. So although we don't have time to look um, at this story uh, in detail, you have almost the exact same circumstances with Samuel's mother, Hannah. So I'm just going to allude to that here. If you remember, Hannah was the favored wife of her husband, Elkanah, but she was infertile. And, and 
On, but on the other hand, he was having children with his other wife, Penina. And in back-to-back -back verses, Scripture points out that the Lord had closed her womb, talking about Hannah in chapter 1, uh, verse 5 and, uh, and verse 6. Penina, uh, on the other hand, used Hannah's barrenness as the means to provoke her. Once again, showing the dynamic of a less than des desirable situation of a polygamous union. And this leads, if you recall, Hannah to pray to the Lord in, in uh, um, chapter 1, verse 12, and described as, in chapter 1, verse 15, pouring out my soul before the Lord. When she was in the temple praying to God because of her barren situation, asking the Lord for a son, she was pouring out her heart before the Lord. Hannah then becomes an example to all women struggling with infertility to pour out their souls to the Lord, knowing that only he can grant your request. She described herself, by the way, as a woman troubled in spirit in verse 15 and filled in verse 16 with great anxiety and vexation. Feelings that I'm sure are shared by women today who are going through the same trial. And shortly thereafter, we are told in, in chapter one, verse 19, that the Lord remembered her. And as a result, she conceived and bore a son who eventually would become Samuel the prophet. Again, this isn't meant to be a formula or a guarantee that you'll get the same results only, and this is the important part, that you should respond in humble, humble submission to the Lord and cast all your care upon him, knowing that he's fully in control and that he cares for you. You know, one of the benefits of infertility, which is kind of a strange thing to say, is that it gives couples a chance to examine their hearts and to deal with sins, if there are any. I'm not implying that there always are, but if there are, it gives us a chance to deal with those. In, in this passage, the sin of envy is highlighted here, and it's one that is very common amongst those who are dealing with this issue. You know, you begin to compare yourself with others in your stage of life, and you see your friends and family members conceiving with little to no problem, maybe even um, not even trying to get pregnant, and yet they're getting pregnant. And so you dread going to baby showers or reading Facebook or Instagram posts of parents with their kids, and it makes you jealous uh, towards your friends, angry towards God, lacking in love towards others, and struggling to trust in God's goodness. These are hard issues that have been brought to the surface by the struggle with infertility. Now, this was true for Abraham, as we saw. It was uh, you know, true for his wife, Sarah. It was also true for Rachel and Leah later on. And so th this is one of the things that it allows us to do is to examine our hearts. Getting back to our story, Rachel uh, responded to her infertility in the same way that her mother-in-law, Sarah, did, by offering up her, silver, her servant, Bilhah, as a concubine to Jacob. And so he agrees to this arrangement. So now, how, how many wives does he have? Three. He's up to three now. And he had two sons with Bilhah, 
which legally became Rachel's sons. Leah had herself become infertile by this time, and so she offers up her servant, Zilpah. How many wives is that now? Four for Jacob, so that he can bear more children through her. And the, the desire to help have children is a good desire. It's a God-given desire. But I think what we can learn here is that it can degenerate into an idolatrous desire and lead you to make God-dishonoring choices. All of this could have been avoided by simply understanding that it is God who opens and closes the womb. This is just as true today as it was back then. As you probably recall, the, this back-and-forth competition uh, of childbearing between uh, Jacob uh, and his two wives, Rachel and Leo, just continued. And in both of their cases, God listened to their prayers, and God allowed both of them to become fertile again. And I want you to notice the language in uh, chapter 30, verse 17. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. That's in verses 17 and 22 of Genesis chapter 30. And all that to say, it was God who had the power of life, and he chose to listen to the prayers of these competing wives and bless them with children, even after they had become barren. God has the power over life and the giving of life. All right, I really have to boogie here. I got a lot more to say, but, uh, you know, only got a few minutes to say it. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. This, is, uh, this one won't take as long, but in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, um, in, let me read this. In the days of Herod, uh, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. This is the famous narrative of John the Baptist's parents. And I wanted to take a moment to point here, to make a point here that ought not to be overlooked in this discussion. And that's the fact that both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were righteous before the Lord, righteous before God, and yet they were infertile. And this should drive home the point that infertility is not always a punishment from God. Now, can it be? Yes, it can be. Such as in the case of Abimelech, when he unknowingly took Sarah to be his wife, thinking that she was Abraham's brother. Well, he kind of was. He was half-brother. And as a result of taking another man's wife, even unknowingly, Scripture records that the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife, in Genesis chapter 20, verse 18. But all that to so it can be a, a, a judgment or a punishment for sin. But all that to say that you shouldn't automatically assume that because you're dealing with infertility, that it must be a punishment from God, that God is you know, doing something in order to punish me for my sins. That was not the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and yet they still felt the shame associated with 
childlessness. You know, after God shocked Zechariah with the news that they were going to have a baby, John the Baptist, no less, his wife Elizabeth said these words five months later in, in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth is both relieved and joyful that God has removed the source of her public shame of childlessness, even though by this time she was past, way past her childbearing years. But she still felt as there was a reproach. But it certainly didn't come from God. All right. Let me give my response here to all of this. And, and uh, starting with letter A, grief is appropriate. Infertility is a painful experience, and we shouldn't underestimate that fact. You know, in one study, 63% of women who experienced both infertility and divorce said infertility was more painful than their divorce. In a different study, women who experienced infertility and a chronic or life-threatening disease said that the emotional pain were actually similar to each other. So when we read about Rachel's exclamation, give me children or I shall die, or that Hannah would weep and not eat because she was so distraught over her infertility, we can sympathize with what they were going through even if we never experienced it ourselves. Elizabeth felt the sting of childness, uh, childlessness into her old age and must have grieved throughout that time to eventually exclaim that the Lord had taken away her reproach. You know, those who are going through infertility desire something that is good, something that's a blessing from God, and yet are frustrated by the curse of sin. So if you desire children but are childless, it's appropriate to grieve over your situation. That's appropriate. We grieve over things that ought to be grieved over. But ultimately, your grief should culminate towards hoping in God. And don't automatically assume that you're infertile because God is punishing you, as we've already talked about, uh, because as we've already seen, many of the biblical narratives provide the perspective that infertility is not to be understood that way, but as the basis for having to trust God in the face of seemingly insurmountable difficulties. This is true of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, and even Manoah's wife, who we didn't look at here today. Hannah, uh, the Shumanite woman, which we did, and Elizabeth. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that these women are not scorned by God but they are shown compassion instead. Now, I realized that that meant that they eventually went on to have babies, and that may not necessarily be the case with you, but we want to remember that we're placing our hope in God regardless of the outcome. That's true of this. That's true of everything in life. It's the process we want to focus on, not the outcome. We can't control the outcome, but we can control how we respond to God. In Psalm chapter 10, verse 17, it says this, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. Isn't it a great reminder that the Lord hears the cries of the afflicted and brings encouragement to them? 
Believers can mourn as they express their faith while suffering. They can cry out to God for relief, for perspective and understanding as they suffer, knowing that God actually hears their prayers and will provide them with the help that they need. Secondly, we need to wait on the Lord. In Psalm chapter 27, verse 14, it says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, we don't talk enough about this, but Scripture encourages us to wait for the Lord. But what exactly does that mean? You know, the word wait has the idea of confident expectation, but that confident expectation doesn't preclude the presence of tension or nervousness. So the psalmist exhorts himself to wait on the Lord patiently. He's preaching this to himself. Wait on the Lord patiently and to exhibit strong courageousness as he does so for the Lord's deliverance. He goes on to say in Psalm 130, verses five to six, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. What is it that the psalmist is waiting on the Lord? He actually doesn't say in this psalm what he's waiting on the Lord for. And so this leaves the issue open to any number of things, including infertility. And it demonstrates a declaration of firm trust in the Lord. The psalmist uses two words here that are synonyms, waits and hope, to communicate the idea of expectant waiting on the Lord. And the psalmist says that his eagerness to wait on the Lord and to trust in his word is greater than that of the city watchmen who long for the morning to come, to end their nighttime shift and the potential dangers that go with that nighttime shift. All this to say that waiting on the Lord is a necessary part of going through infertility, and each of the biblical characters had to do so. The benefit of doing so is that it helps to safeguard our hearts by meditating on God's character. It provides time for reflection, self-examination, and a wrestling with God, mourning and crying. And it's during these times of waiting on the Lord that we can take comfort in God's word. As one author who has experienced infertility in his marriage uh, commented, I guess you can't really read that, huh? It's kind of small, but he said this, so, so you gotta listen to me, I guess, but he said, waiting safeguards our hearts. It helps reorient ourselves. We wait actively, not passively, not fatalistically. We don't demand, God, do something. We don't sit back and wait until he does what we demanded. Godly waiting meditates on God's character, his goodness, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his majesty. Godly waiting cherishes the comforts he does provide. Godly waiting asks, Lord, let me see these unexpected blessings that you've been giving me all along. That is waiting. That is worship. Active waiting also requires self-examination. You notice the places where you love things too much, where things have become a lust, like fertility treatments. You spend so much of your life centered on it that it controls your whole life. But you can wait and say, 
No, I want to cherish God for who he is, for what he has done for me. I want to examine my heart. I don't want to be consumed by this fertility quest. Remember who you are in Christ, that your identity is in him and that having children isn't going to satisfy you more than what Christ himself is already doing to satisfy you. Your identity is in him, not in any role or relationship that you have. And that's why we could say along with the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have just one last thing to say here uh, in this last section, in, in, and that is to rest in God's goodness. You know, when going through infertility, you may be tempted to think that God isn't being good to you. As Matthew Arbel points out, he said this in his book on infertility. He said, yearning for a long-awaited child may prompt a range of emotions, including anger, rage, despair, bitterness, and resentment. These are natural, effective responses anyone may harbor toward God when it seems God is not furnishing children he just as well could furnish. From our limited human point of view, God's withholding strikes us as arbitrary, and arbitrariness fosters resentment. But God's withholding is never arbitrary, even when it involves children. I just want to leave you with this last passage. This is the last thing I'm going to say here today, and that is Psalm 100 which says this, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Four, verse five, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This short passage is one of my favorite passages. If you've met with me for counseling, you've probably heard me say this at some point. And if you haven't, you probably will. But this short passage reflects David's basic theology. And that is found in verses three and verse five. And that is God is God and God is good. Know the Lord that he is God, verse 3, and know for the Lord is good, verse 5. God is God and God is good. Listen, you may think that when you're going through this, that God is withholding his goodness uh, from you, but that simply isn't the case. It might feel that way, but that's not true. God's sovereignty isn't devoid of his goodness, or that would be terrible news for all of us. Knowing that God is in control... And that control is qualified by his goodness means that everything he's doing in my life is good. Do I know the reason why he wants me childless? No, I do not. But I do know that his will is perfect and that whatever reason he has for me to be childless is good and I must trust in that goodness. And it's only as I recognize these twin truths that God is God and God is good that I can do what's in the rest of that verse, in, ver in the verses that surround, that I can praise him, that I can serve him, that I could sing to him, and even give thanksgiving from the heart 
because of those twin truths. So infertility reminds us that we are not always in control, but Psalm 100 reminds us of who is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to discuss this in a very sensitive topic of infertility, and we pray for those who are going through it, that you would give, grant them your comfort and your grace, and even grant the, the, the blessing of life. Help them to trust you and to find their hope and contentment in you, and pray that our church would be a place where they could feel the comfort and love of other believers. We pray in Jesus' name.